The aftermath of nonviolence is the creation of the beloved community. The aftermath of nonviolence is redemption. The aftermath of nonviolence is reconciliation. The aftermath of violence, however, is bitterness. And this is the thing I'm concerned about. Let us fight passionately and unrelentingly for the goal of justice and freedom. But let's be sure that our hands are clean in the struggle. Let us never fight with falsehood and violence and hate and malice, but always fight with love so that when the day comes that the walls of segregation have completely crumbled in Montgomery, that we will be able to live with people as our brothers and sisters. Welcome to the beloved community every second Friday at 9 a.m. on KBOL. I'm John Shuck. My website, still in progress, is johnshuck.com. Uh, you can go to the old one, progressivespirit.net. Normally, this program is live. Today, it's pre-recorded as the studios are undergoing some work. But this gave me a chance to put this special program together. Some changes have happened in my life. I'm a Presbyterian minister, and I have been for 27 years. Now, I am without a pulpit. In November, I resigned my position at Southminster Presbyterian in Beaverton. We parted on good terms. Nothing needs to be said about that, except that the church and I are going in decidedly different directions. I think the mission of the church is to have a completely free pulpit, to be able to speak truth to power, especially in regards to empire and its wars. Since 9-11, the American empire has wasted trillions of dollars and killed millions of people through illegal and immoral regime changes in a fraudulent so-called global war on terror, blaming Muslims for a crime they did not commit. In 1961, Dwight D. Eisenhower warned Americans about the military-industrial complex. Eisenhower said then, In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals, so that security and liberty may prosper together. Eisenhower from 1961. Since 1961, the year I was born, the military-industrial complex has metastasized and grown by orders of magnitude. It is now a military-industrial-finance-intelligence-media complex. Just this past week, on Monday, December 9th, Congress's Armed Services Committee presented an obscene and bipartisan $738 billion Pentagon budget. For what? What have we become? Congress and the presidency regardless of political party, are impotent. The media, including entertainment and news of all kinds across the board, from left to right, from MSNBC to Fox News and all in between, rather than be protectors of the people, are instead agents of the war machines 
propaganda. As Jesus resisted the Roman Empire in his day, the church is called to do the same today. That's how I see my calling, at least. I don't know of any church in the American Empire can hear this preaching. This isn't about religion in any narrow sense of the word. It's about what it is to be a human being and how we have allowed ourselves to become enslaved. I also had a spiritual experience over these past 18 months. I went to Karbala, Iraq, and participated in the largest annual peaceful human gathering on earth with Muslims, mostly Shia Muslims. It's called Arba'in. I witnessed in that gathering of 15 to 20 million people traveling to Karbala, walking to Karbala, Iraq, in a two-week period, walking for justice in honor of Imam Hussein, a sign of real hope for humanity. I saw that. I saw that led by the very people who have suffered over the centuries from tyrants. This summer and fall, I've had the opportunity to visit Islamic centers across the country in California, New Jersey, Washington, D.C., Boston, and Seattle, sharing my experience and showing the documentary film my colleague and I made about our visit. Personally, I'm in an interesting place. I have no idea what's next. Perhaps that important work will continue. But I thought you might like to hear my farewell sermon to my church. Here's part of it, anyway. It was kindly edited by a couple of Muslim friends and placed on a local Islamic educational website called the Association for Learning and Improvement Portland, A-L-I-Portland.com. In the sermon... I mentioned two of my personal heroes, truth-tellers, who you will also hear from on today's show. The sermon was preached on November 24, 2019. I call it Holding to Your Truth. On Friday, I prayed at the Islamic Center, as I do on occasion. It's where I go to church, so to speak. Where do ministers who lead worship go to worship for themselves? Uh, that's where I go. I appreciate the sermons of Imam Musan al-Dalami. I always learn new things. I'm learning slowly how to pray. They are patient with me and welcoming, happy that I'm with them. And this past Friday, a boy, a middle schooler, I would guess, led the call to prayer. And afterward, when the prayer was finished, in the hallway, he told me he, how much he liked the film that Josh Townsley and I made about our walk to Karbala. He spontaneously gave me a hug and asked me if I was a Muslim. I've been asked that before, as I've been invited to speak at Islamic centers around the country. I never know exactly how to answer that. On Friday, I said, I'm a Muslim in my heart. I don't think we can really engage in interfaith work and not have our hearts transformed and expanded. In interfaith encounters, at least as I see it, we must risk transformation. It isn't just about telling others what we think or what we believe. That is nothing more than a sales pitch. For me, I want to know what God is saying to me through you. That approach, by its very nature, risks transformation. You can't control what will become of you. In this, my last sermon with you, I do want to leave you with a few things, including my appreciation for you. 
And I feel the need to share this journey with you as I close my time with you. In February 2018, I moderated a panel discussion regarding the war against Yemen at Portland State University. And it was entitled The U.S.-Saudi Coalition, Bringing Peace or War. And it was in the follow-up of that conference during an email exchange that I first heard of Hussein. He was referenced in regard to the panelists, all of whom had taken risks and had sacrificed in varying ways for their work in bringing truth to light. All of the panelists, including Kevin Barrett and Mohammed Al-Nimer, were and are truth-tellers. They told inconvenient truths about the powers that be. And that is how I was introduced to Imam Hussein, peace be upon him, is what we say in to honor these figures. He was a truth-teller, and he was martyred for embodying the truth. I knew nothing else about him except that, and I wanted to learn more. So when I went to Karbala, Iraq, for Arba'in, I did learn more about Hussein, the grandson of the Prophet Muhammad, not only intellectually, but also spiritually. I learned that Hussein, through his sacrifice, saved Islam. And he defined Islam by his sacrifice as a religion of beauty, truth, justice, love, peace, courage, and compassion. Hussein was and is, as I saw him, a mirror image of Jesus. They are siblings, they are brothers, they are one. As I said in a sermon a few months ago, it is Jesus I follow to Karbala, Jesus showed me Hussein. If I want to follow Jesus, I must follow Hussein. Hussein shows me how to follow Jesus. Hussein and Jesus both sacrificed in the same way. They sacrificed all they had, their very lives, for the reign of God, for the reign of divine values. And they both summoned the world to follow in their steps if we wish to participate in this transformation of the world. The Arba'in Walk of 15 to 20 million people or more is a modern miracle of this transformation. It's a sacrament through which the world is being summoned to walk as one against all forms of tyranny. My heart for Jesus expanded because of Hussein. I'm a better Christian because of my encounter with Islam. And that's not about religion in the narrow sense of that word, whether one is Christian or Muslim or Jew or whatever, but it's about religion in the broadest sense, the power of love that connects us all at the deepest levels. And when I went and touched the box above the grave of Imam Hussein, alayhi salam, I wasn't sure if I should do that because Hussein wasn't a figure in my religion. But I was told again and again that Hussein is for everyone, regardless of religion or creed, just like Jesus is. So I'm in the shrine of Imam Hussein, and it's beautiful. And the air conditioning is on, which is nice, because it's in the 90s outside. And it's filled with the sounds of prayer. People are crying, some people are standing, some are sitting, some are in various postures of prayer. Poetry is being recited from many different places all at once. I don't understand a word of it, except now and then I hear a name I recognize, Ali, Zainab, Abbas, Hussein, 
And this is all about a week before the day of Arba'in. And I'm with the tour group, and I decide I want to go and touch that big box in the center of the shrine, the latticework above the grave of Hussein. And I don't know what it's like on the women's side. It was probably more orderly. But on the men's side, even a week before the day of Arba'in, the place is packed. And it is a push and pull like an ocean wave of bodies. Your feet almost leave the ground. There are so many people. And you know where you're headed, to that box over there. But it's like swimming in the ocean. You don't need to be aggressive, but you have to hold your own. You swim through the bodies, pushed left and right. Finally, I got close enough. I was almost there. And I should stop right here, because I was very conscious of being different. Different religion. I only speak English from America. My reddish hair, well, now reddish-gray pale skin of the thousands of people inside that shrine that day, I was probably the whitest guy in the room. But I reach up when I finally get close enough to put my hand to touch the latticework, and I can't quite reach it. I'm about three inches away. And what happened with me is that I reached up, I couldn't touch it, and a hand took mine and pushed it up against the latticework. It was a brown hand taking my white hand up against the final resting place of Imam Hussein, peace be upon him. And there's a visual imprint in my mind that beyond all color, all race, all religion, all language, the language of love and of truth and courage is one. The love of Hussein, whose person and my eyes met, we just looked at each other. As I swam away, just a few yards away, I saw this other man, and he stared at me. Tears were streaming down his face, and he asked me, as many did on this trip, where are you from? And I told him, America. And he just started bawling. And he hugged me and he kissed me. I've joked that I've never been kissed by so many men with scratchy beards. <laughs> but what is this? It's Iraq, a country that felt post-apocalyptic to me. I, like many of us Americans, watched from a distance as our leaders led us into war and lied us into war, destroyed Iraq, and then ignored its suffering. Nobody goes there. The travel agent laughed at me when I asked her. Nobody that I know except my brother-in-law. He's a professor at NYU, and he goes often to the northern part of Iraq because of his work in peace building with the University of Kirkuk. But besides my brother-in-law and soldiers, I knew of no one who had been to Iraq, a country that Americans like me need to visit, a country devastated by the demonic, by lies and wars, by bombs and depleted uranium, by hatred from outside powers, mercenary terrorists and puppet tyrants the people left to fend for themselves. The U.S. State Department tells Americans not to go to Iraq, too dangerous, bad, whatever. What did I find? I found love. I found tears. I found joy. I found hope. I found my heart had expanded. A Christian American was embraced and shown the love of Hussein Salam. My heart was expanded. Courage is the result of an expanded heart. With courage is insight to tell the truth as best as you know it when you need to tell it. That doesn't mean I know truth more than others. It doesn't mean I'm not wrong. I'm wrong often. Courage is admitting it and learning from it. 
Courage does not mean selling you my truth. It doesn't mean that. Hearts do not expand that way. You tell what is true as you know it, and you live what is true, and God does the rest. But it does mean that I cannot, nor can any of us, be afraid of what we know or of what we learn because of this discomfort of truth to me or to others or to the powers that deceive. I included in today's order of worship three different quotes from Dr. David Ray Griffin. Dr. Griffin, in my opinion, is the most important Christian theologian in the 21st century. And the reason I make that very bold statement is because of sacrifice. He held on to what he believed to be true, not only true, but important for justice, despite misunderstanding, ridicule, name-calling, and marginalization. He communicated what he believed to be true at the very point when and where it matters most. I'm going to add Dr. Kevin Barrett to my list of the most important Muslim scholars of our time, as well, for the very same reason, sacrifice. He communicated what he believed to be true at the very point when and where it matters most. And he did so at great risk to himself and at great loss. That is the type of sacrifice <clears throat> that is in the spirit of Jesus and Hussein, peace be upon them both. And that is what I want to leave with you, my dear beloveds at Southminster. Hold to your truth. Hold fast to your truth. Whatever that truth is, don't let it go for the sake of acceptance by others. No relationship that requires you to deny your truth is worth keeping. Do know that if you do hold fast to what you know is true, and this truth is in order to goodness, it will at some point require sacrifice. But if it is true and good, it will last. It will resurrect beyond death. It will live and save. In the Gospel of Thomas, Jesus said, if you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. But if you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. In other words, if you bring forth your truth, the truth will save you. But if you do not bring forth your truth, that truth will destroy you. So, in answer to the question of the boy who asked me on Friday if I am a Muslim, I will leave that for God to judge whether or not I'm worthy to be called a Muslim. For my part, I will trust the brotherhood of Jesus and Hussein as bringers of divine values. May we all embrace these values, regardless of our religion. That was my last sermon, my farewell sermon to Southminster as I have resigned my position there. My name is John Shuck. You are listening to The Beloved Community. I mention in the sermon the importance of holding to your truth. An individual who has modeled that for me and I believe for all of us, is Dr. David Ray Griffin. This is part of an interview I had with him about two years ago when he published his book, Bush and Cheney, How They Ruined America and the World. Glad to be with you, John. Tell me, uh, Professor Griffin, how many books have you written on 9-11, and, and what's new about this one, and, and what's its focus? <laughs> well, it's, it's, I guess this, is, this may be my 12th uh, book. It's sort of obscene, but I think it's, 
I think that's what it is. And uh, the other books really focused on 9-11 itself, that is, the, uh, all the different kinds of evidence that show the official story is false. Of all those other books, the, the one called The New Pearl Harbor Revisited is the one that gives the fullest account of all the different kinds of, of evidence. The present book is attempt to get attention to the evidence by pointing out how disastrous the you know 9/11 attacks have been. So the first two thirds of the book deals with all of those different things. The most crucial recently, of course, is the crisis in Syria. Now, you would say, well, Bush and Cheney didn't have anything to do with that. Uh, that was Hillary's job. Well, yeah, but they got it started, and she took it over. And this book is really a book about against the neocons. And uh, Hillary had become a full-out neocon by the time she was running for office. She was more publicly uh, associated with Libya, where she was crowing about having killed the dictator there and, you know, laughing. And she thought that was great fun. Her reputation with regard to Syria hasn't spread as far, although there was a New York Times front page story that pretty much uh, laid it out, her involvement both in Syria and, and Libya. And so I deal with all, all sorts of different things, the, uh, the development of Islamophobia, the uh, crisis in uh, Europe with the uh, refugees, millions of refugees coming into uh, Europe and so on. Then the last part of the book uh, deals with uh, the 9-11 as such. So in a sense, it was like, it's like the previous books, but this one is unique in that it focused strictly on miracles. It shows that uh, every dimension of the 9-11 day, that is the downing of the World Trade Center, the Twin Towers, and World Trade Center 7, and the uh, Pentagon, how all of those, every one of those involved uh, miracles. So when people say, oh, come on, 9-11 people, you, you believe ridiculous things. Well, none of them would go on record saying, I believe in miracles. They just ignore the fact that these buildings couldn't come down, couldn't have come down, and uh, the Pentagon could not have been attacked the way it was attacked um, without miracles. So my hope is that people would see the the two things: all the things that have gone wrong, have how how 9/11 has ruined the, uh, America and the world. So with regard to America in particular, the the shredding of the uh, constitution. Now, a lot of that was done under uh, Obama, but he was carrying out what Cheney had started. My hope was to get that. Some people would say, okay, well, you know, maybe we need to take that seriously, that it was not just uh, the attack on Iraq that has caused a lot of problems, but it was a much broader uh, effect of uh, of our response to to 
and then to actually look at the evidence and see it's completely unbelievable. Nobody uh, with any intelligence, nobody with the slightest knowledge of uh, physics and chemistry uh, could believe the official story. Professor David Ray Griffin is my guest. He's on the phone with me talking about the book is just out, uh, Bush and Cheney, How They Ruined America and the World. Now, my show, I get a lot of, uh, it's it's pretty much a leftist show. I'm there with the anti-war movement. I talk to my friends about 9-11, and they say, yeah, we agree about uh, the Iraq War and the Afghanistan War and, and the uh, Patriot Act, so-called, and all of these kinds of things, but they won't go. They think that 9-11 is a distraction uh, from the cause. But your book says, no, we, we got to understand, really, uh, what happens with 9-11 if we're going to have a resistance to these other things that has been the result of 9-11. Is that right? That's absolutely right. And, uh, you know, it's not. Also, it's also uh, not just a, a leftist thing. Uh, uh, several of the leading critics of the, the official story about 9-11 are on the right, like Paul Craig uh, Roberts, mm -hmm. whom I quote uh, a lot in this book. What they've done, though, the CIA, the Pentagon, the White House, the Bush-Cheney White House, been very effective in convincing people they should not even look at the evidence. You know, people ridiculing Trump now, rightly so, for just ignoring uh, the evidence and making up his own stories. Well, that's just what happened on 9-11. Bush, and Ch primarily Cheney, created this story, and it's just a, a ludicrous story. As I say, it's full of miracles, but you can't get people even to look at it. They'll just say, oh, that 9-11 crap. I'm not going to read that. That's just nonsense and so on. So they've been very effective in preventing people from even looking at the evidence. For example, your, your own experience. I mean, you've written now 12 books. So you've been doing this for some time, presenting your scholarship to the scholarly community. What's the reaction been? Has it gotten any better? Um, is, it, is it even being more dismissed as, as conspiracy theorist? Yeah, it's just pretty much uh, dismissed in, you know, academic circles, Oh, you're one of those guys. Not, not entirely. Um, we've got an organization called uh, Religious Leaders for 9-11 Truth. And so quite a large uh, number of people have, have signed on to the petition. Uh, just as there are, you know, scientists for 9-11 Truth, firefighters for 9-11 Truth, the biggest one, of course, is uh, architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth. Several thousand uh, professional members of the American Institute of Architecture have written very strong things about it's just, you know, it's just impossible. The official story is just impossible, but nobody will read it. Yeah. I'm wondering, though, if there may be some new movement, especially with AE 9-11 Truth and, and, uh, and their diligence in bringing the science to it, that this may be uh, a point in which a number of people who have influence can, can ultimately turn the tide. Obviously, you've been the, the one scholar throughout uh, that has kept this uh, open investigation happening, and so we might be reaching a, a critical point. Do you think that's possible? Well, I think it's possible, and of course, this book is my uh, probably final attempt uh, to do that. 
I got a number of really, really first-rate uh, and and uh, sort of mainstream uh, commentators uh, who wrote uh, blurbs. I think I have about 20 of them in, at the front of the book. So if people would just look at those and say, well, golly, if all those people think there's something wrong with the official story, who am I to say they're wrong because they've studied the evidence and I haven't? Somehow it doesn't seem to go that way, though. The fact that you studied the evidence shows that something's wrong with your mind. That point has not been reached yet. For example, you mentioned the architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth. Uh, it made a big effort this year to get a uh, petition that would be signed by a sizable number of uh, members of the uh, American Institute of Architects. And um, it was very poor uh, results. So even though people who will actually look at what Richard Gage presents, they almost automatically sign up, put my name on there, and they write an endorsement. They'll say, you know, this obviously can't be true, the official story. Those are the people who will actually uh, listen to Richard or watch one of his videos. Most of them evidently just won't even do that. My guest is David Ray Griffin. Uh, he's on the phone with me from California, uh, author of Bush and Cheney, How They Ruined America and the World. You know, there's one uh, neocon who knows the truth more than any, and he's still living, and that's Dick Cheney. Um, in fact, a major part of your book really is is about his role uh, in all of this. Do, have you ever met Dick Cheney? Is there any chance that he might have a come to Jesus moment? <laughs> I have not met him, and it would be, uh, you know, anything's possible, but I'm I'm not going to count on it. You know, and he he and he and Bush are both uh, card carrying Methodists. And I mentioned that because the school where I taught, School of Theology at Claremont, Claremont School of Theology, is um, primarily a Methodist uh, school. There have been a particularly, you know, great embarrassment, embarrassment to, to us. You know, you are a theologian, and and uh, I have to say how how proud I am as a religious person that uh, that you are the one uh, has that has really put your scholarly efforts toward this, and and I think it's obviously because of your theological training uh, that has allowed you to sift through a lot of the lies of the state uh, that uh, that keep coming at us. In fact, I want to read a quote from you. You wrote the big lie. You said the hope behind this book is that journalists, politicians, and other people seeing that the neocon mania for empire has been leading America and the world in general to hell, will realize that concerns about reputation are trivial by comparison, and we may be emboldened to stop the madness by exposing the big lie for what it is. And, and I saw that as a call to not be scared off by the labels of conspiracy theorists or, or all of that kind of stuff, and all of the threats to our reputation or job, but to really embrace the truth as it comes to us. Yeah, I think I'm glad you quoted that statement. I think it's uh, the most important statement in the, in the book to say this is what it's about. But I should say now, uh, you know, for a while uh, there was no doubt about that I was the leader of the the 9/11 Truth movement. But now the leadership has been become so 
uh, widespread and different fields. So you've got uh, Richard Gage is, is currently, you know, he he has really taken over the the leadership of the 9/11 movement, and uh, and rightly so. But also the uh, the physicists, the uh, uh, chemists like uh, Niels Herrett. There's a lot of expertise in this movement. Uh, believe it or not, I, <laughs> there's another book that will be coming out pretty soon, within a year probably, that is based on a program that a colleague and I started called Consensus 9-11. And so we got about 20 experts from various fields to see what consensus we could have about which parts of the official story are false. I was motivated to do this because I would hear stories about journalists who, who just wished to put down the movement. They would quote somebody who is, you know, not a scientist, not a philosopher, not, you know, just a guy who calls himself a member of the 9-11 movement. And he makes some really stupid comments. And then so the journalists will quote such people and say, that's what 9-11 truthers believe. So we tried to get a that would say, no, here is what 9-11 uh, skeptics believe. We got to the point where we'd have to get a certain percentage of agreement among our group uh, to say, okay, uh, this, is, this is consensus. And so... Uh, that will show uh, further how widespread this movement is and uh, how sound how sound the scholarship is. And for those of us in the movement, it's just, you know, it's so ludicrous, the, the official story. And we've proven it time and time again. And the evidence is so strong and the, the, the reputation of uh, dozens, actually hundreds of people, scholars of various fields, have agreement on this. But probably nobody listening to this broadcast has ne ever heard of 9-11 consensus or heard of any of these things about um, the evidence um, and how strong it is uh, to show that the official story is a, a lie. Now, one thing, one of the new things in the, the book is about Cheney. According to the official story, he was in his office, and then he was taken downstairs by the Secret Service, but he didn't really get into the the room down there, there till, uh, I think it was 9.58. Well, the fact was that Cheney went down there very early. The mainstream press pretty much ignored all the evidence, including one member of the cabinet who said, no, no, Dick Cheney was down there certainly before 9.30 and certainly before the Pentagon was struck. But the, the reason for the lie about this was that uh, that way they could claim that Cheney could not have been responsible for the attack on the uh, Pentagon. Well, in the book, I've, I've uh, summarized uh, new evidence that showed that there were at least three major statements by members of the Secret Service who were there and involved in 9-11 who said that Cheney 
was into the the room before 9:30. I mean, this is a this is a blockbuster story potentially for the press to say his story about 9/11 that shows that Cheney lied and the 9/11 Commission lied about where Cheney was. And this has been this has been available for over a year, and you not have a single mainstream report about this. Why do you suppose that is? <laughs> now that's another show in itself. Uh, well, it all goes back to to empire. These are all things to uh, support America's uh, dominance of the world and therefore of its natural resources. And that and that's and 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 to do that is a lot of disinformation, a great deal of pressure. You know what I get to, uh, when I uh, talk about this. Um, and one of the objections is, well, if this were to have happened, there would have been whistleblowers. What do you think oh, about yeah. that? Yeah, and then of course there are a few whistleblowers, and and they get ignored. The press will not cover uh, the whistleblowers. There have been a number of whistleblowers, but we often don't know about them because they haven't been reported at all by the press. That's right. If uh, if a whistle blows in the forest and nobody hears it, was it really blown? <laughs> you know, uh, one of the I I, I know you got, have to go, but I wanted to ask you about uh, Islamophobia. I'm I'm also a member of Religious Leaders for 9/11 Truth, and and part of my reason was I just felt we've been blaming the wrong people for a horrendous crime. And if there's anything that is a, a sin throughout all of our religious traditions, uh, it certainly is bearing false witness. You know, it's the greatest false flag uh, operation ever, both in terms of the size of the operation and in the size of the uh, effects. So that's another way of describing what my book is about, uh, what have been the effects of the uh, 9-11 false flag attacks. And David Ray Griffin uh, has been my guest, and, and his book is, is just out, uh, just off the press, uh, Bush and Cheney, How They Ruined America and the World, uh, an incredibly cogent uh, book and a documentation uh, telling the truth, it'll open your eyes. Bush and Cheney, how they ruined America and the world. David Ray Griffin. Okay, well, thank you very much, John. You're listening to The Beloved Community. My name is John Shuck. My website is johnshuck.com, also progressivespirit.net. That was an interview from August 2017 with David Ray Griffin. He's one of two people to whom I'm dedicating uh, this week's episode. In February 2018, I moderated a panel discussion at Portland State University called the U.S.-Saudi Coalition Bringing Peace or War. The event was sponsored by KBOO, and a number of panelists spoke, including Dr. Kevin Barrett, on the theme of empire. And this is his speech. I present it because Dr. Barrett, as I said in my sermon, is a truth-teller. He has been wrongly characterized, smeared, and censored because he speaks about taboo topics. Truth-tellers should not be censored by decent people who care about truth and goodness. They should be celebrated, protected. The world needs them. In this speech, he compares two empires, the U.S. empire and the Saudi empire, and the destructive things they do as they approach their end. Our next speaker is Kevin Barrett. Kevin Barrett is an American Muslim and Ph.D. Islamic Studies scholar. He's won 
of America's best-known critics of the War on Terror. He's authored and edited several books and has appeared many times on Fox. You'll, find it, you'll enjoy the one where he has an interview with Sean Hannity. I thought that was uh, very good. Uh, CNN, PBS, and other broadcast outlets. He's inspired feature stories and op-eds in the time, New York Times, uh, Christian Science Monitor, Chicago Tribune, and other mainstream publications. He was a former teacher at colleges and universities in Paris, San Francisco, and University of Wisconsin. He currently works as a talk radio host, editor at Veterans Today, and a pundit on various international TV channels. Uh, his website is Truth Jihad. Welcome, Kevin Barrett. Okay, uh, my topic today is the decline and fall of the U.S.-Saudi alliance and the U.S. and Saudi empires. So we're going to zoom back and, and take a kind of a broad overview of things and ask ourselves how we got to this place and where things are going with this U.S.-Saudi relationship. The big picture here is that we're nearing the end of the age of U.S. and Saudi hegemony, that is U.S domination of the geopolitical map and Saudi domination of the world of Islam. Now it's interesting that there are so many parallels in the rise and fall of, of the US and Saudi empires, which of course are joined at the hip. Uh, this all began on February 14, 1945, when President Roosevelt met with Abdulaziz ibn Saud on a ship, the US, was it the USS Quincy? in the Suez Canal and cemented this alliance that has lasted right up until today and maybe on very uh, shaky ground right now. Now, this alliance uh, has, has led to the rise of Saudi Arabia in the post-World War II period and the rise of the United States as the dominant world empire. And both of these countries have done this through their strong economic basis. Uh, both empires are built on excess wealth. The U.S. has long been the world's leading economic power with half of the world's manufacturing capacity and more than a third of the world's GDP uh, coming out of World War II. And it used that wealth to build the world's first truly global empire, clamping down on the world island of Euro Eurasia from both ends, the Euro European and Asian ends with its ring of what's now 900 military bases, and the Saudis built a kind of an empire, despite their perverse, bizarre sort of approach to Islam, which is a very, very minor approach, really. Uh, they've managed to use their massive oil wealth to kind of colonize the world of Islam. They fund most of the mosques here in the United States uh, and are behind so many Islamic movements all over the world that everybody in the Islamic world is afraid of them. Now, these economic bases with, for both the Saudis and the U.S. Americans, we U.S. Americans, uh, are declining precipitously right now. Uh, the U.S. manufacturing sector, which was our strength, has now gone offshore. The uh, Saudis, uh, and of course the U.S. technological base is declining as well as our educational system collapses. Uh, and other countries are massively outperforming us in technology education. Uh, Saudi Arabia is also losing its base, which of course is oil. As Matt Simmons has written and many others have written, the Saudis are depleting their oil reserves. And recently when they tried to bankrupt their competitors and adversaries by pushing the price of oil as low as they could, they failed. They were unable to put Iran 
and Russia out of business, and they were unable to put the shale oil industry here in North America out of business. That's just one of their many failed efforts. And that leads us to this issue of failed adventures. When empires are about to fall, they often launch wild and crazy failed desperate adventures. And the US and Saudi Arabia have both been doing that recently. The US with its uh, debacles in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria has wasted $6 trillion according to conservative sources. The Saudis, with their debacles in Syria, uh, Yemen, which was supposed to last two weeks, uh, Qatar, uh, where they couldn't stop Qatar from asserting its independence, uh, their kidnapping of Yemen's prime minister, uh, they've failed and failed and failed just as catastrophically as their attempt to bankrupt their competitors in the oil market has failed. So these failed adventures as these dying empires lash out uh, are happening simultaneously, uh, US and Saudi Arabia. And culturally, there's an interesting parallel between the US and Saudi Arabia. Both uh, have funded and promoted a certain kind of what we might call a fundamentalist cultural imperialism. Uh, the US has imposed its brand of consumer capitalism on the world, just as the Saudis have imposed their uh, culturally and spiritually and aesthetically impoverished version of Islam on much of the Islamic world. Benjamin Barber's book, Jihad versus McWorld, explores this so-called clash of fundamentalisms, as Tariq Ali calls it. So there's another interesting parallel. And in terms of this, the religion or dominant ideology, both countries have, have certain parallels there. Uh, both are built on de facto state religions. Here in the US, we have what David Ray Griffin, the great 9-11 scholar, calls nationalist faith. That is this kind of basically a kind of enlightenment liberalism that assumes that uh, their government honors these liberal ideals and would never do anything seriously wrong or evil. Uh, and yet these ideals are violated uh, grotesquely by American elites on a regular basis. And likewise, in Saudi Arabia, they're built around this Salafi Wahhabi version of Islam, a very puritanical version of Islam. And like the US elite, the Saudi elite is uh, a bunch of hypocritical liars. Uh, the Saudi royals violate the letter and spirit of Islam on a regular basis, just as the US leaders violate the letter and spirit of, of our own constitution. So this hideous spectacle of rulers flouting their nation's most sacred basic principles uh, while imposing draconian punishments and humiliations on ordinary people is pervasive in both countries to the extent that ordinary people in both countries have grown inured to that. And in th this discrepancy between the ideals and realities both here in the US and in Saudi Arabia is so uh, extreme that it's driving uh, a kind of chaos and fractiousness. In, in Saudi Arabia, this outlandish corruption and hypocrisy, hyperactive collaboration with the enemies of Islam and Muslims, uh, bulldozing the holy places. Uh, they turned the uh, Prophet Muhammad, peace upon him's wife's uh, house into a public toilet as they bulldozed all of these sacred historical sites. Uh, they pretend to do Islamic outreach or dawah, uh, but in fact collaborate with the production of the most extreme anti-Islamic propaganda. These head-chopping videos, the uh, spectacle of planes supposedly being hijacked into the Trade Center, all of these, these big lies and anti-Islam propaganda stunts, the Saudis are right there behind them. Uh, so we have two, two Saudi Arabias, the official Saudi Arabia of supposedly protecting 
the holy places and being the most pious Muslims on earth, and then the real Saudi Arabia, which is the exact opposite. Uh, and likewise, we have the real America as opposed to our ideal America. The official America is the America of free elections, constitutional protections, progress, protecting civil rights. The real America is one where the best political leaders are assassinated by government operatives. Torture is widespread, widely practiced, and now perfectly legal with a president who loves it. Uh, where mass incarceration has reached unprecedented levels. Elections are stolen by rigged voting machines. Citizens are programmed below the level of consciousness by ever more effective brainwashing techniques and a, a nearly perfect panopticon of surveillance, omnipresent universal surveillance has been established. In short, the most unfree society in all of human history is continually hectored into believing that it's the most free. So the epitome of this schizoid hypocrisy here in America, which parallels one over in Saudi Arabia, is the joint US-Saudi and of course Israeli 9-11 false flag operation, which was staged by American neoconservatives as well as America's Saudi proxies as a desperate and doomed attempt to enable a new American century, a new Saudi century, and of course, a new Israeli century. So this uh, extreme contrast between the official lies and the sordid truth uh, is creating the chaos and divisiveness uh, in both the US and in Saudi Arabia. Over in Saudi Arabia, it's, it's been so troubled for so many years, we've all been expecting it to fall, the House of Saud to fall like a house of cards. Uh, and it's, it's wavered a number of times, hasn't quite completely collapsed yet. Uh, and likewise, here in the US, People no longer believe the official lies. Uh, beginning in the 1960s, uh, 1970s, 1980s, two-thirds of the American people uh, understood that JFK had been killed in a sort of coup d'etat. And now in the internet age, we have the 9-11 truth movement, which uh, has as the central pillar this uh, debunking of the official 9-11 narrative. And indeed, this American suspiciousness of the official discourse is behind the Trump uh, emergence, uh, which is, was cleverly manipulated by people like Steve Bannon. Uh, that's now we have a so-called conspiracy theorist in the White House, for better or worse, that's been driven by the fact that people quite correctly understand that they're being lied to on a regular basis. And, and this fractious divisiveness that emerges from places where the leadership is so lying and hypocritical is, is increasing here in the US uh, and in Saudi Arabia. Uh, we have US and Saudi rulers finding themselves increasingly vulnerable to this polarization and, and fractiousness spreading among their populations. The US is polarized as never before. 70% of Americans say their country now is at least as divided as it was during the Vietnam War. And some say that we would have to go all the way back to the Civil War to find a time where it's been this divided. And again, this is largely the result of the exposure of the grotesque lies of our own elites. And over in Saudi Arabia, they too are seeing conflict and fractiousness, uh, not just among their people and between dissidents and the establishment, but also within the elite, where the Crown Prince Salman has arrested uh, the leading figures in the kingdom and killed some. Uh, some of these people are his own cousins. He's confiscated their fortunes 
and has turned, even turned against his Wahhabi clergy. Uh, so all of this is undermining the structural foundations of power in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Now as the US and Saudi Arabia have this, undergo this parallel decline, they both are becoming more and more subservient to extremist Likudnik Israel under Netanyahu. Uh, today, Netanyahu gets standing ovations from the US Congress. He gets deference from the White House. Uh, it basically runs the show over here and in Saudi Arabia too, where they've come out of the closet as close allies of extremists like Hudnik Israel. So in summary, both of these nations, uh, the US and Saudi Arabia, are losing their hegemony. We're at the end of this long arc of rise and fall of, of empire. Uh, Saudi Arabia is losing its leadership in the oil markets and the Muslim world. And the US is losing its global hegemony. As Jim Fetzer suggested, China is the rising power. And it seems very unlikely that the US has any uh, ability to maintain this empire much longer in the face <coughs> of China's uh, rising productivity and economy, which will uh, eclipse the US's within the next decade or two. So, the question becomes, will these two nations, the US and Saudi Arabia, cling together ever tighter, like drowning people who can't swim, with each one trying to use the other one as a life buoy? It kind of looks like that's, that's what we're seeing. There are hints that the Saudi leadership may try to survive by uh, turning against the US uh, and ditching the petrodollar in favor of the Chinese yuan. This uh, would make sense in that the US is increasingly self-sufficient in oil and uh, China is an increasingly bigger customer of Saudi Arabia. The Saudis say that they're scheduling the, this privatization or selling off of their government oil company Aramco this year. The most likely buyer, the single largest buyer is the Chinese government and various fronts for the Chinese government. So by selling Aramco and blowing up the petrodollar, which is what the US has used to rule the world since World War II, right? We can print as much green paper as we want and force the whole world to give us real goods and services for it. So by blowing up this arrangement and destroying the petrodollar, uh, uh, Saudi Arabia could hasten the fall of the US empire while also triggering desperate US counter moves that could hasten the fall of the Ibn Saud dynasty. So this is the situation that we're facing right now, the, the twilight of both of these empires that have so much in common. I like to think that we have some good things here in, in the US that they, haven't, they don't really have over in Saudi Arabia, but uh, unfortunately there are an awful lot of these parallels. So I guess the, the real question becomes, which of these two declining powers will fall first, the US or Saudi Arabia? Will their mutual entanglement and desperate efforts to free themselves from it prove their undoing? I guess we'll find out. Thank you. That was Dr. Kevin Barrett speaking at a KBOO-sponsored event in February 2018 at Portland State on a program entitled The U.S.-Saudi Coalition, Bringing Peace or War. 
I dedicate this episode of The Beloved Community to two of my heroes, Dr. Kevin Barrett and Dr. David Ray Griffin, who have character that far surpasses the character of those who try to suppress and smear and censor them because they are unwilling or unable to hear uncomfortable truths about the empire in which we live. Truth is a sacred flame. Very few people are capable of carrying it amidst the powerful forces that utilize the tools of ignorance and mockery. We need to protect them, celebrate them, give them a platform. I leave with you what I left with my church. Hold to your truth. Hold fast to your truth. Whatever that truth is, don't let it go for the sake of acceptance by others. No relationship that requires you to deny your truth is worth keeping. Do know that if you do hold fast to what you know is true, and this truth is in order to goodness, it will at some point require sacrifice. But if it is true and good, it will last. It will resurrect beyond death. It will live and it will save. You've been listening to The Beloved Community every second Friday at 9 a.m. Catch the podcast at kboo.fm, my website, progressivespirit.net, and the one I'm working on, johnshuck.com. I am John Shuck. Be well. I'm sick and tired of hearing things.